Today's episode of Effing Shakespeare is brought to you by the writer Edgar Allan Poe, the man today's guest has anointed as the patron saint of broke-ass freelancers. Stay tuned as Cat Bab explains, and we spitball a hallmark line of throw pillows, cross-stitch, and candles in his likeness. I know you're going to love this episode. Also, a very special first here on the show, Jessica uses the word y'all, and my Texan heart melts like a popsicle on the lips of a sweaty kid in a Houston August. Whatever you're moving is making it impossible to hear whatever you're saying. <laughs> if you could hear how loud it is. <laughs> it's okay. It's like, it's like if I took my microphone and start rubbing it against my body. <laughs> like a deodorant stick. <laughs> That's what it's like. And log back in. Okay. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Okay. No, he was talking to the cat. Oh. The cat, not cat. <laughs> <laughs> so on this podcast, we just canonized Poe as uh, the patron saint of broke ass freelancers. Yes. <laughs> right. Can we get a medallion? Can we get a candle? Cat, you could market the candle and the medallions. That could be your side gig, your side hustle on top of your other many side hustles. I'm buying the domain <laughs> right now. <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. Today in the podcast, we have an absolute delight of a person and a writer, Catherine Bab Magira. I met Kat in the ladies' room at the James River Bay Conference in Richmond, Virginia, from which she hails and where I lived for a short but definitive time. I don't recall what we started talking about at the sinks that day. Note to self, essay idea about the often mundane circumstances that spark immediate lifelong female friendships. As with Kate, who I met at the Writing Center at University of Tennessee, I felt this certainty that I wish I felt in all areas of my life all the time. Back then, Kat was working for a poor man's Tom Cruise and just breaking into Richmond Weeklies. Her voice in those early essays was so engaging and smart, as real and delightful as talking to her over unhealthy amounts of yogi tea in my apartment in the fan. Since then, she has rocked her day job at The Motley Fool and placed essay after thoughtful, hilarious essay in high-profile publications garnered a shout-out from the queen, Michiko Kakutani, and, well, I'll let her tell us the rest. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kat. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. My youngest child is going through a bizarre sleep regression, and I have officially lost the ability to fall back asleep after he wakes up. And I've been doing this, like, thing where I get out of, the bed and go into the living room because I'm going to go read but instead of reading I get lulled into internet diving Uh and it's been really good to me lately like the internet has been I've been finding gold at like 3 a.m which usually you know typically that does not happen for me I just do you guys know who Sarah Marshall is I just found this woman she does long form for like ESPN and the believer She doesn't always write about sports, but she has. And I found this article from 2014 on Tanya Harding, 
Oh, wow. Which, um, Kat, I don't know if you knew, but I had a past life as a figure skating coach. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so. And and figure skater. And, yeah. Like, pre like, almost no, Olympics. No, no. Not almost Olympics. Yes. No. You know. <laughs> Um, I, I skated competitively through college, but nowhere near Olympics, but, but then coached my way through grad school and what have you. And, you know, several years after that, but that's neither here nor there. It just was this article I didn't know existed about Tanya Harding. That is like a more complete rendition of, of her life than even I, Tanya, which I thought was a really, which was like a great sort of tribute to who she was to her complexity. But this article was even even better and I just thought usually the internet is not this good to me it was so nice to like discover a new person and start following her on Twitter and and uh, uh-huh. yeah anyway neither here nor there have you guys had a uh, internet like gold lately I think I think lately I've been at such a point of saturation with mm-hmm. it uh, that it's, nothing has penetrated, but that might the problem might be on my end. I feel like I've yeah, I feel a little bit of both. I feel I can't remember the la- the latest where I was like, oh yeah, now I'm gonna follow you. It's gonna be great. Because <laughs> then it's like, because then I mean, I'm sure I know there have been. I know in the last couple of days there have been, and I don't. But then I don't remember, and then they just become part of the whole like cacophony of people I follow who don't even mm-hmm. post that. Like the people I really want to post don't post as often, you know? And then it's like, yep, then I've got to go on Twitter and like... I think that's why I brought it up, right? Because Twitter can be such a minefield um, that we often forget, or I forget that there's like still some good to be found somewhere in the interwebs. So yeah, can you just start us off by letting us know how how you found your way to freelancing? Yeah, of course. So I was in college in the early aughts and I was studying journalism and English lit. And then after school, I did an MA in creative writing like a lot of people do. And afterwards, this would be, oh, yes, this is a wonderful time to be entering the job market. It was 2008 (laughs) with industries collapsing. So I ended up having to take a job as an advertising copywriter. It was not what I wanted to do, but I needed health insurance and I couldn't get it work as an adjunct because I only had an MA. So searching for a creative outlet on top of that, and also because the money was not unwelcome at the time, I started writing for the Richmond All Weekly, as Jess mentioned. And, you know, I would do arts coverage and write about bars and doing a whole week of karaoke and that sort of thing. There was a lot of room to experiment and have fun. And I worked with some fabulous mm-hmm. editors. So that's how I got my start. That would be 2008, 2009. And then much later, after a very long slog, I started breaking into national publications, which took a lot of time and a lot of pitching and also a lot of serendipity too. Uh, one of the reasons I say people can learn a lot from freelancing and why I feel like I have is because not that the individual pieces pay very much money. You're really talking about, at least in my world, max like seven or $800 for a feature, which isn't nothing, but after taxes, it's not a whole lot considering the hours you work. But freelancing has this way of leading you into what I kind of think of as these asymmetrical opportunities where there's a lot of upside and the downside exists, but 
it's not nearly as large as the upside. So for instance, from freelancing, I've met a ton of other writers, including some people I really admired. And um, oh gosh, I've even it's even led to occasionally like doing a celebrity interview here or there. And then also like radio and podcast interviews and all that sort of thing. So it's brought me into a larger circle, even at moments when I wasn't living in a major city and I wasn't feeling so great about my professional project <laughs> prospects at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a it's it's like the opposite of a cautionary tale. It's an inspiring tale, <laughs> or maybe there's some. I mean, it's yeah, it's Poe. It's Poe in a nutshell. But we we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have to show off about Cat too because at the Jane River Writing Conference, first of all, she did her MA in New Zealand, which is so cool, and um, and second of all, at that conference where we met she the year before I believe or maybe it was that year I think it was the year before had won this big first novel award so oh wow that's I awesome I think yeah I think there's something about I hate this word and it's so awful but being nimble enough to pivot you know from the very academic literary world um into into freelancing that so many of us either don't know how to do or I mean we're not taught this in school right so yeah I totally see what you're saying it almost seems like there's this barrier between the two where you have like a popular media over on one side and then the other like the academic world and the like the world of small reviews and that sort of thing and I mean I, I tried for a long time I mean I wanted to write self-regarding literary fiction <laughs> but I couldn't find takers <laughs> so I was forced to write for audiences <laughs> uh, which I, I feel like for me has been really good because it has helped beat some of the self-indulgent tendencies out of me maybe other writers don't have as far to come I definitely had it too I had that distance to close oh, right. we all have it I think I don't think yeah uh, there's no way. I mean, there's no way if we're in academia that we don't have it. And there's no, you know, it, that's that's what it fosters. It fosters a lot of good things, but there is a lot of like, oh, this is important when really it isn't anymore. You I know? feel you. I sometimes miss that world of high ideals and like this purity of, or what I remember as a purity of vision. Yes. Where he's, you know, here out in the world living and it's a little bit more corrupted and polluted and not separated from the other parts of your life and I miss that like realm of pure feeling yes. and maybe I'm being romantic about it now have you guys found the same thing completely I mean I feel like this is the perfect segue to the article I mean because you basically have to write to the Wendy's and the what's the I think it's Alex name? Alex yeah. and Wendy yeah right? yeah you... I'm very interested to hear what you guys think of that uh, article <laughs> because I feel like I've got a hot take so, so we're talking about this article. I think some there's been a lot of talk about it lately by Christian Lawrence Sam. I'm not sure if that's how we pronounce his last name. It's it's from Harper's called Like This or Die. And yeah, I was telling Jess before we got on the air that I read it initially and then sent it to you to see if you wanted to talk about it. We would be willing to talk about it. And then sort of set it aside for a while because I did have certain gut feelings that I wanted to kind of check out if 
if they came back. Mm -hmm. And I reread just the first few bits again this morning. And there's just something I cannot connect with. I think I have a, a sort of longstanding distrust of people who think they know everything <laughs> and write in that way. You know, like it's one thing to have an opinion and to assert your opinion, but there's this kind of um, flavor to the piece that just makes me come at it with so much distrust, even though I think there's probably some value to what he's saying. I bristle for sure. Yeah, what's your, I agree. I, what's your hot take, Kat? I think I'm with you, Kate, in that there's something that strikes me in it. Uh, of, and listen, I respect Lorenzen, and I, I'm sorry his contract got cut at New York Magazine. No one relishes news like mm -hmm. that. But at the same time, I get yeah, a strong absolutely. vibe of self-appointed guardian of culture. And I'm not at all <laughs> yeah. convinced that there exists these silos of capital L literature and capital E entertainment where... I, I also think his take on Poe's critical career is not quite as maybe as informed as it should be. Uh, this is where the take gets spicy. Right, right. I think a lot of what Poe was bothered by was issues in his day of what he saw as literary nationalism, where, you know, America was trying, as you guys well know, um, trying to develop its own literature. And there was a lot of cheerleading, even of bad or mediocre work just because it was American. And Poe rightly decried that trend. And of course, he also felt that he himself had not been recognized for his genius. So it, it's a many-flavored many thing coming from Poe. It's not at all as straightforward as, as the quote suggests it is. The literati of New York that Lorenzen is is quoting was a very complicated set of work where this is this is funny. At towards the end of his critical career, Poe had not he felt he had not burned nearly enough bridges. <laughs> so he basically set about torching them all by writing portraits of the literary personalities of the day, including some of his best friends and people who employed him. And these were the scathing portraits that I mean, there was body shaming, all sorts going on in there. And Poe was just kind of letting off the fireworks. So I, that could be a segue to really what I feel like Lorenzen's getting at there is like he wants to be able to torch people and pan works by other writers. I, I feel like he's treating it very simplistically. And hey, granted, his article is not about Poe and his critical career. But to bring it in as an example of what he's talking about, I think it's not quite right, or, and not in the sense of accuracy. Uh, Poe's complaints with the literature of his day were very were multifaceted and by no means uh, hinging just on an ability to pan other writers' work. I'd also say this about Poe, and I think this is not recognized enough, but to the extent that, to an extent, he was a kind of proto-internet troll, or that's how I see him in his critical career, <laughs> because he made his name by one of the many instances in which he falsified his resume. He would talk about how, <laughs> I love his lies. I really do. Um, <laughs> anyway, he would talk about how he, when he was in his editorial work, had contributed to uh, magazines, publications, and subscriptions going like way up, saying that like subscriptions had increased from five thousand to thirty thousand in a single year under his editorship. <laughs> no, it was not true. But 
he did it in a self-conscious way in order to gain attention <laughs> and to make a name for himself. So I also, I mean, so when Lorenzen wants to bring him in as a figure, like, in defense of this sort of elitism, I, I don't think that that it's the example he thinks it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not quite the, the whole story. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, would you guys say that you feel people should have the right to have a large, to be able to put the hatchet to other people's work in front of a large, relatively prestigious audience? Definitely. And have it be entertaining and also astute and revelatory and possibly, you know, sometimes part of it wrong because there's no way to get it all right as part of a dialogue, as part of discourse, definitely. So you're saying you think it's okay to take a hatchet to work in front of the whole world? Is that what you said, Jess? Yeah. I mean, that's what the New York Times review of books used to do. I wonder if, I mean... it had a section like that. (laughs) I think that the troubling thing for me is the, just the size of the platform is so much more vast than it Mm -hmm. has been in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the readership of the New York Times book review in 40 years ago is much different than the amount of people who are reading, um, criticism now. And so, yeah. And the, the problem for me is who is policing the people who are, um, cat, wait, what did you call them? The, the, you know, the, the arbiters of yeah self-appointed right yes yeah self-appointed guardians of culture you know who gets to say who that is and so i i don't know i i i always respect critics who um approach the work with a little bit more humility yeah i mean it can be both though right i mean poe probably didn't but (laughs) it is a different world even even if we're doing comparative analysis here so i think i think there can be incisiveness and humility together and Mm -hmm. as long as the guardians say by the way I'm one of the guardians and y'all out there also you know in a way because you might catch me on something that I didn't get and I and I will have you know humility when I'm called out for my mistakes no I agree with you I think absolutely like we have to have room for that kind of honesty especially when it's coming from a a place that's not motivated by score settling or or what but I also and maybe this is more of a historical argument too but in the past who has wielded that power and to shut out who and who has fallen on the designated right side of the line and who has not and who has been like marginalized and left out so I say I'm not I'm not so much for like the wizard to stay behind the curtain. I think we should have it in full view with oversight because the lack of those things in the past has created this establishment that largely functioned to just keep out marginalized people. Yeah. Sure. Um, Yeah. And I will say, I think one of the, um, one of the arguments that made sense to me in the article was that he was saying you can't just trust the algorithm right with Wendy and Alex the the two sort Mm -hmm. of prototypical consumers of culture that you know take their recommendations from whatever pops up next in the Netflix list or you know their 
best friend said this. I mean, I believe the onus is on the the consumer of that culture to go out and seek other things, right? And get outside of the sort of silo. Prescribed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And see what else is out there. And if we encourage that in schools and, you know, in the sorts of things that are taught in schools and once you get outside, then you're much more habituated to that kind of activity right where whereas like you were saying I don't I don't know that that's been the course of things heretofore right then we have to give it up for academia because it is at its best trying to teach critical thinking all the time right yeah just don't look at Texas public schools I would love to hear Kat read some because I think that 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 was one of the bright spots also about internet diving is that sometimes you find your way to people you don't know mm-hmm. via serendipity. Sometimes it's because a friend knows a friend. And um, and that was my experience finding my way to Kat's work. Um, and I would love to, to share some with the listeners. Would you would you be up? For that reading from um, your your Poe article, I'd love to. Okay, so this piece was called Edgar Allan Poe was a broke ass freelancer, and it was published by the Millions in 2017. It's one of my favorite titles, titles. of all time. <laughs> Thank you. It was named after the revelation that I had. I was like, oh my god! It, it so that I was like, well, that's personal. the piece. But yeah, totally. A lot of fans know Edgar Allan Poe earned just $9 for The Raven, now one of the most popular poems of all time, read out loud by school teachers the world over. What most people don't know is that for his entire oeuvre, all his fiction, poetry, criticism, lectures, Poe earned only about $6,200 in his lifetime, or approximately $191,087 adjusted for inflation. Maybe $191,087 seems like a lot of money. And sure, as book advances go, that'd be a generous one, the kind that fellow writers would whisper about. But what if $191,087 was all you got for 20 years of work and the stuff you wrote happened to be among the most enduring literature ever produced by anyone anywhere? In one sense, there could not be a more searing indictment of the supposed rewards of the writing life. How, whether we're geniuses like Poe or not, we suffer and rewrite and yet never realize anything even kind of approaching the commensurate value. In another sense, there's hope for us all. Last October, in the depths of a depression so profound and overwhelming that I had to take mental health leave from work, I started rereading Poe for the first time since I was a kid. And something happened. I encountered a writer completely different from the one I thought I knew. It turned out Poe was not a mysterious, mad genius. He was actually a lot like my writer friends, with whom I constantly exchange emails bitching about the perversities of our trade. The struggle to break in, the late and sometimes non-existent payments, the occasional stolen pitch. In short, I realized that Poe was, for a good portion of his career, a broke-ass freelancer. Also, (laughs) that our much-vaunted gig economy isn't the new development it's so often taken to be. 
Poe's short stories weren't the adventure horror tales I remembered either. They turned out to be exquisitely wrought metaphors for despair. In Message Found in a Bottle, the narrator, finding himself just about to be sucked into a whirlpool, says, It is evident that we are hurrying onwards to some exciting knowledge, some never-to-be-imparted secret whose attainment is destruction. I read the line and laughed in recognition. That was 2016 for me, in a sentence. Call it a most immemorial year. And so then the essay goes on into multiple parts and talking about money and depression and, and Poe, of course. I love it. I, I spent some time this weekend talking to my, I don't know, this podcast keeps coming back to my children. I'm sorry. Mm. But it, my middle child is taken has taken up comic strip writing. And so she's been experimenting with all these different forms. And we were talking about the turn and what that means when you're telling jokes and she's like a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan but I think it's something that you do in your essays so well is that we start with this premise the you know the broke-ass writer the broke-ass freelancer and you think it's going to be one thing and then by the end we get we get to something else and I just I was just struck by how you do that you you tend to do it I've read that in in most of your essays and I just love it I think it's a great way to weave the personal and also something that is so clearly researched. I mean, you spent so much time with Poe. And I think sometimes the more we get into the nitty gritty of research, the further we get from ourselves. And you manage to do to do both in a really so rewarding way. Maybe it's <laughs> for, you know, at various moments of your life, you're like deep into some kind of reading. And that was so the experience of, I had this terrible year. And I was more depressed than I've ever been in a lifetime of, you know, episodes of it. And in this depth, I started, I don't know why, but intuitively, I think I picked up Poe and from reading this story is like, and spending all this time with this like immense darkness and horror, I moved on to reading about his life and I was struck by this sort of quasi-religious revelation that his story was a story of hope mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. persistence in the face of, you know, the, the terrible facts that we all deal with, yes. right? Death, illness, loss of people you love. And at the same time, carrying on and making the time for your art in spite of having no money, right? And having very little time and like shit just going wrong. Yeah. So I was yeah. really inspired by that. And then also like, I mean, any rabbit hole is rewarding, right? Yes. The whole universe. Well, maybe that's, I mean, maybe it's weird, but the whole universe of Poe criticism is full of these amazing personalities. Like, for instance, okay, so the numbers I'm citing in the essay, uh, the $6,200, that was John Ward Ostrom, wrote a paper in which he painfully <laughs> went through every single letter Poe ever wrote and every like receipt or anything that could be found and tallied his lifetime wow. earnings. And I have to imagine that that was years of work. And yet, it, you know, now it's just a paper you can Google. So, <laughs> And that's just a line in your essay. Wow. Right. Right. Where you build on like, you know, you have the feeling of you're just totally standing on the shoulders of or like kneeling on the shoulders of giants. And I, I think from this lonely place, I ended up feeling a connection to a Poe especially, but a lot of different people who had also felt this Poe connection. Mm -hmm. So 
it ended up, you know, it was like a multi-year journey. And by the end of it, I wasn't depressed anymore. <laughs> at least, <laughs> at least less depressed. Poe is his own universe. And yet it's so expansive because the, I'm going to quote James Wood, I think it is, who said his influence is so pervasive as to be almost invisible. And you just find him everywhere. Oh, gosh, like I watched so a Lindsay good. Lohan movie the other day, as you do. <laughs> a what movie? And Lindsay Lohan. She said, Lohan movie. this is the first time... That name has been said Lindsay on this podcast. <laughs> Georgia Roll. And the Raven has, yeah, the Raven has a minor part to play in it, no. in the drama. Oh my gosh. So, I'm never going to unsee that now. That's amazing. I'm going to look for Poe everywhere. I, yeah, he pops up a lot. He's like a little bit of a kind of Kilroy-ish figure or... Well, you 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 linked to it anyway. What were you going to say, Jess? You were linking to memes that came out of Poe, um, right? In the essay, I think there's a clickable link that goes to all the Simpsons and like um, SpongeBob references. And oh my gosh, that that was Britney Spears named a tour after one of his poems, like her dream within a dream tour. What the fuck? Are you serious? (laughs) Yes, he's everywhere and. The number of incredible writers that have spent a lot of time on him, it will blow your mind. <laughs> Not just like the book length works, but also, I mean, people who also spent a lot of time from T.S. Eliot to Orwell just tearing him down. <laughs> um, Jeez. I mean, I have the, I keep playing with an idea about like 101 ways to roast a raven, <laughs> but like all the insults. <laughs> that have been lobbed his way and anyway I just I, you know I love it it's very entertaining could, could this become a self-help um book you know that, that there's there's so many shitty self-help books out there like I'm maybe this could be an actual thing the way to get yourself out of depressive episodes you know um with therapy and whatever else you need but also maybe oh. you know delving deeply into oh i think he's you know obviously the most likely self-help guru in history (laughs) 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 he's like a you know who was wise and successful and happy in his life and then you get to end girl yeah so yeah it's like it's uh brene brown deepak chopra and and then poe right (laughs) (laughs) like here's the thing like i i think i i grew up with this catholic understanding of saints my parents are very devout and there's this cliche in at least american catholicism where you're like encouraged to think of the saints as friends and like to pick one that really speaks to you yeah and i think that was kind of with poe because he doesn't shun the darkness in fact he leans so far over the void peering in that it's comforting in a way because he's not telling you it's not real right and when you live with that yeah like I mean a lot of people struggle with mental health issues like minor major whatever um and he certainly did himself and yet his achievement is like on a scale that almost no one else ever reaches so I I don't say it's like a straightforward chicken soup for the Poe lover's soul, like inspirational tale. I think it's 
<laughs> very gritty, but very real. Yeah. Mushroom I barley. Um, I don't know. <laughs> some other kind of soup that's not as easily digestible, but still. Chicken soup. Still <laughs> right, warming. Right. A little right. harder in the system, <laughs> but. Like one more time. Oh Speaking God. of so, real, so on this podcast, we just canonized Po as uh, the patron saint of broke ass freelancers. <laughs> yes. right. Can we get a medallion? Can we get a candle? Cat, you could market the candle and the medallions. That could be your side gig, your side hustle I on would. top of your other many side hustles. I'm buying the domain right now. <laughs> I think there's something about real that I want to hinge on. First of all, I I feel like it also is important to um, call you out as a poet. Um, And I always think when I'm reading your essays that there's some, that turn that Plutarch talked about with the sonnet, like it comes almost at the exact same place in your essays. And maybe that's just a formula that, you know, it's just so common that there's no even need to recognize it or to limit it to poetry. Um, but you are a poet also and a good one. And uh, your your essays, as Kate mentioned, do have that sort of, I mean, I guess all, all personal essays do, and we can talk about them as a, as a genre as well. But that, that turn, that subversion, um, that like you know, torsion of expectations or whatever, which is, um, I just feel like needs to be somehow linked back to poetry. So I guess this could go one of two ways. It could go searching for the real and finding it in Poe and link and talking about Elizabeth Holmes, or we could, we could segue to the personal essay. Which way do you want to go first? We could talk about Holmes briefly. If you got, I, I've never turned down a <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes discussion. So I'm okay. here for it as long as y'all want to. I've never done and talking you might about have to her. I find her so fascinating. And there's a part of me that admires her on a level, not, not because she's a, an alleged criminal, <laughs> like, uh, but with the chutzpah. And also speaking of scales of achievement, she managed to, or seems to have managed to have pulled off this, a scam on a very large scale. So you think of Theranos and the company, which was granted it was private, privately owned, privately valued, but she got it to the point where it was valued at $9 billion. And because she held half the stock, her net worth topped I think it was four and a half billion. And hilariously, Forbes named her a woman billionaire. Uh, quite incredible. So anyway, I'm, I'm very attracted to her story and kind of can't get enough of it. So I wrote this piece for Shondaland, which is Shonda Rhimes' uh, editorial website. And it was about like thinking of her as kind of like an in real life Lady Macbeth and kind of like an ubermensch and how she personifies like this extreme aspect of our culture and also how I kind of look at her and I'm like, if you could bottle whatever it is she's on, I want it. And even like a drop, even a drop of it. I mean, it's like, Imagine what we can achieve with one drop of whatever she's on. Yeah, yeah nanotainers. Yes. Let's get some nanotainers with right. yeah, Elizabeth Juice. Elizabeth Juju. 
right. I mean, I think like, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I wrestle with self doubt like 90% of the day. And the fact that she managed to, she acts like she's immune to it, which is, I mean, all the more amazing in a woman because of the ways we're conditioned to behave, not just at home, but in the workplace where you're supposed to, you know, we're often, often trained to be self-effacing and to take a back seat and give other people the praise. And here's this person who's like a gigantic, don't give a fuck, go after it sort of type. And I'm, I'm enthralled to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it ended in criminal prosecution. (laughs) Which says something, right? About our ability to uh, contend with that sort of power. Um, But yeah, I I appreciated that take from you um, as a way to sort of, we, we were all sort of trash talking about it on Twitter for a long time, but then I read your piece and it made me reflect on it in a different way. You guys should definitely go check it out. We'll link to it in the episode notes because it's really satisfying for sure. It's almost like she empowered two sides of the same coin, you know, the self-belief amidst, you know, all all circumstances to the contrary, mm. just pushing through and pushing through and pushing through. And um, yeah, I really, again, I didn't, I didn't see that about her. I just saw her as a liar and um, I didn't see all of that incredible self-belief that goes against everything that, that women are told and have been told. You know, to a degree, I think the experience of having writer friends is realizing that there are some incredibly talented people who aren't always great at the marketing side of, yes. of being in the world. Right. And yeah. so I really do admire I mean, I, and I think we can learn from them to an extent. I'm not suggesting you create $9 billion frauds, <laughs> but the <laughs> relentlessly pushing yourself forward and believing in yourself. Like for instance, Jess, I, I love your work and I want to see it in the world and uh, I want other people to read it. So I, I mean, I kind of like, you know, I wish you would drink some of the Holmes juice. We all Me should. Too. Right. Um, a Poe too, like, I mean, let's not underestimate what a, a liar he was. I mean, right. constantly, like, he shaved years off his age consciously. And, I mean, for <laughs> one of the reasons the first biographies were inaccurate was because he told the biographer a bunch of lies. He <laughs> 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 convincing this romantic act for himself. So, I mean, wing it, you know, if you have to. Oh, so the moral of this episode is lying is That's <laughs> cake. Your whole resume. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I was really fascinated about that. The question about how to get, you know, a, a granted sort of weird essay on the face of it. How do you find a home for that? You know, the, the Poe essay where it's sort of investigating the Venn diagram of depressives and Poe and, and, you know, how do you find the place to, to submit and be successful? Oh, yeah, that's such an important question. For me, a lot of the, I think the landscape is pretty diverse, despite, you know, the fact that some publications aren't well known as others. For instance, with that Poe piece, I pitched it to multiple publications at the same time, as you do. And the millions, uh, Lydia Kiesling over there, who's such a brilliant writer herself, uh, took it up immediately. And 
gave me some great edits on it and eventually published the piece. And granted, the millions as audiences go, it's not commanding the biggest one, but it's also a very uh, literary audience mm -hmm. and a lot of fun to write for uh, people who are like a really dedicated community. So I think the millions is a great outlet for weird little ideas. Uh, so is the LA Review of Books, so is Electric Lit. There are a lot of great smaller literary publications which will give you uh, a lot of freedom to explore these weird ideas that have, that can reach an audience, I think, but have not yet or haven't been proven out. So the, a lot, my experience has been that like pitching editors at smaller sites can help you get these weird ideas into the world. Uh, often when, you know, the Washington Post book world isn't even going to return your email or whatever. Right, right. And this, this sort of, I mean, I guess tell us about the progression of your career that you were doing, you know, you were pitching these ideas and slowly broke into the national market. And then that's led you to even, um, you know, more opportunities that you probably never saw coming, right? Like there's some, you're doing some movie writing. Yes. That is true. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was, it took a very, very long time to make, like whatever progress I have so far. So looking back over the last 10 years, I, I went, it, I started writing for alt weeklies, which are often, unfortunately, not many, not as many of them exist as did 10 years ago, but can be a great way to break in and start writing about the arts when you don't have necessarily a degree or a background in that. And then I was gradually pitching larger publications, like small national outlets and think it was also while working a day job and you know at moments like living abroad and so I couldn't really prioritize writing but in 2015 uh, my husband and I had moved back to the U.S. we'd been living in Australia and we bought this little house in our hometown and I wrote an essay about it for this small personal finance website called The Billfold which is not a regional publication it well it's actually just it's just died like so many oh, of them, no. but I agreed. It was such a great site. I really miss it every day. Um, but anyway, I wrote an essay about buying this house and the experience of it. And it did well online. Um, like Yahoo Finance picked it up and, and ran it, uh, which I didn't realize until I Googled it later. <laughs> but the big thing that happened from this tiny little, relatively tiny little personal finance site was that night I am like eating a pan of brownies out of the pan and just watching Nancy Meyer with my girlfriend and I get a Facebook <laughs> so this dignified evening uh, we get, I get a Facebook you mean, you mean like brandy snifters and right uh, high-minded movies <laughs> right <laughs> So I, I get a, a Facebook message and friend request from a senior editor at, at then she was at New York Magazine. And she was like, hey, I saw your thing. Do you want to pitch me? What? And yeah, it was so exciting to me that like my girlfriend and I ran around the house screaming and my husband thought something terrible had happened. But that's kind of what I mean, though, with the serendipity of freelancing, like you start to get out in the world. And maybe I mean, 
I wish to God in a lot of ways I hadn't written that piece. I regret everything I ever write. <laughs> but it can lead to, you know, these larger opportunities. And when, all right, so she asked me to pitch her. And I was, the next morning I was in her inbox with two or three ideas and she took one and it ended up being like my first, you know, byline of size or this wow. piece on how I'd blown a lot of money on highlights idiotically over the years. I love that piece. I love good. that piece. I was going to ask you about it. And strangely enough, yeah, it was it, that was a lot of fun to write. Though I've gotten a you know a fair amount of flack for it here and there. It's called uh, "I Spent Eleven Thousand Five Hundred Thirty Seven Dollars Becoming a Blonde." Yeah, and uh, <laughs> when my you've gotten a lot of I flack, but LA, you got a lot of praise too. You, I was reading some Instagram comments where people were like, "I don't know who this cat bab woman is, but she sees me, and I love her." <laughs> I hope so. You should. T- I mean, I'm like, email me. Let's be yeah. friends. Uh, we can talk about highlights. <laughs> anyway, when I moved out to LA about five months ago, um, I had I have an old college buddy in LA who is an independent movie producer, and not at super high levels, just you know, out here working. And he had happened to be taking some meetings with some movie people who work in. I guess what I would call like a, a beloved genre of thriller that a lot of us grew up on and that women especially love. And we, he was like, maybe you want to write something together. And I was like, I love this genre. I grew up on it. Um, and it would be like the greatest honor of my life to uh, write about, you know, evil nannies and, uh, twins. You know, evil doppelgangers. And that's, right. Yeah, right. twins, long lost adoptees coming back to the murder of the birth mom. <laughs> kind of I, I love it. And so, anyway, uh, we decided to work together. And then when we got attached to a director and a production company to write a screenplay in this genre, um, when, you, when you take those meetings, they want to see other things that you've written. And I said, you know, I don't have a lot of screenplay work to show you because I haven't been a working screenwriter, but I do have this idiotic piece I wrote for the cut about my highlights. <laughs> Maybe you'd like to see that. And then we got the job. So one thing sort of weirdly leads to another. I wouldn't say it like it hinged on having written this personal essay about my highlights, but um, it seemed to help seal the deal uh, and show like a, a demonstrating an, an awareness of a female audience. So I think that's how it was put. I love it. Um, that's really thrilling. So you're in the middle of the, the screenplay. Are you guys done with the writing part? We just finished yesterday after a marathon oh session. So our first draft is done and we moved to getting edits from the production company and uh, some other people involved in the project. Holy crap. Congratulations. Thank you. I, it has been so fun. I think it's the most fun writing I have ever really? done. Really? Oh, that's amazing. Is it the, do you think it's the collaborative part? It is in the, I mean, all right, as a writer yourself, you know how hard it is to produce 90 pages. Yeah. <laughs> and we did that in one month uh, between the two of us splitting it up and tag teaming the project. And so to, to have that sense of accomplishment after one month is amazing. And I'm like, I'm never going to write anything myself ever again. I never again. want to spend a year on a project ever again in my life. Everything will be one month from now on. Right. That's amazing. Uh, 
you know, it's a first draft situation, but um, I love collaborative writing now. Yeah. I'd never done it before, not to this level. Yeah. Yeah. Jess and I have experienced it to some extent with podcast prep and also working on a YA novel together. And it is, it's, it feels like way less work and a lot more fun. Um, So I guess the moral of the story, Kat, then is if you go from some freelancing gigs, write a piece on Poe, get contacted by New York Magazine, and then screenwrite, and that's how you break in and win writing games. I know it's a very conventional story, (laughs) but... (laughs) Yeah. We talk about many publishing journeys, and they're all different. We just like, you know, we like to give everybody the lay of the land. There are many opportunities. And you forgot the self-help book. Oh, yeah, and then you have to write the self-help book. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, there's no ladder, is there? And not that I'm aware of. Like, no. So you just kind of have to reach for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, at least in like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where can people find you so that they can link to more of your really interesting and disparate work? Thanks. All right. So I have a website, KatherineBadleyGuerra.com. I'm on Twitter at GradeZilla1. Anyone can reach me by email, too. If you look on my website, there's contacts, and it's just my Gmail. So I love hearing from people. I also have a Contently page where if you Google me, you can find it. and has a list of every article I've written in the last three or four years. Okay, so just to wrap up, here on Effing Shakespeare podcast, we're doing an all-woman season. And so our final segments of the show are all to be answered by either women writers or women artists or women female people of interest. So are you game for a sort of lightning round? Absolutely. Okay. So best book you've read written by a woman in 2019 so far? All right. It's not a contemporary novel, but I've been rereading Jean Reese's lesser known novels that she wrote in the 30s before White Sargasso Sea, and I find them stunning and they feel so contemporary. Um, I like her short story collection, Tigers Are Better Looking. They're kind of down and out stories of women dragging themselves around Paris and aging and catching money off old lovers uh, what's not like. <laughs> I love Jean Reese and have not haven't read her in a long time thanks for the inspiration I will return so good if you were in charge of the time women of the year who would you pick thus far in 2019 I would pick Elizabeth Holmes <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that uh, as a, if there's someone <laughs> more interesting I'd like to know uh, and someone who's more emblematic of 2019 culture which is scam culture or alleged scam culture i love it forevermore <laughs> that was my <laughs> Holmes impersonation what about your favorite female character from tv oh all right well i would say this this morning but i am a big fan of Arya stark who's a warrior but seems to have the internal struggle that i can relate Hell to yes. uh, and she killed the Ice King, so... Spoiler alert. If you haven't watched episode three of season oh, eight, shit. what the hell is wrong with you? No, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. <laughs> and Thanos dies. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, it's Sir Jorah. Yeah. 
No. I heard him referred to in a piece of writing as the Lord of the Friend Zone, and I can't <laughs> stop thinking that. Oh, <laughs> my word. That is so awesome. Yeah, whoever that writer was. Brilliant. That's amazing. Um, okay, lastly, who would you want to write and star in the Lifetime movie based on your life? Oh, wow. Okay, I am a huge fan of the Canadian actress Sarah Polly, who is so great in Dawn of the Dead and has written and directed some amazing work yeah. herself. She's a lot prettier than me, <laughs> so that's great. That's my casting decision really comes down to you. <laughs> who portray me as better looking and smarter than I really that's am. Amazing. So. Oh my gosh, Kat, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a pleasure. It's such a pleasure, you know, meeting and talking with you, Kate. I really love to do it in person sometime. And I love the podcast. I've been listening to it. I Nick Flynn, I love that episode. <laughs> you guys are doing amazing thank work. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kat. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate Best it. Best of luck with the rest of the movie as well. We'll um we'll keep keep track of your increasing victories as you continue to move up this ladder. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. All right, you guys have a good one. Thanks again. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not quite starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. The only thing that's, that was crap was just you know, we couldn't hear some of it. You can't see me, but I have my palm to my face right now. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh.